This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Pete Payne, pastor at Grace Church. If you want to, you can open your Bibles up to John chapter 19. We're going to continue with our study through the Gospel of according to John. But before we do that... I'm going to tell you some interesting facts about Theodore Roosevelt. He's mostly remembered as the 26th president of the United States, but this astonishingly multifaceted man was a great many other things as well. Now listen to this. He held an elective office as a New York State Assemblyman, Governor of New York, Vice President, and President. He was also a Deputy Sheriff in the Dakota Territory, Police Commissioner of New York City, U.S. Civil Service Commissioner, Assistant Secretary to the Navy, and Colonel of the Rough Riders, all before the age of 42, at which time he became the youngest man ever to hold the office of President. He was one of the original members of the American Institutes of Arts and Letters. He was a founder of the Boone and Crockett Club, the National Collegial Athletic Association, and the Long Island Bird Club. He also established himself as a historian. He was a president of the American Historical Association and as a naturalist. He was considered the world's authority on large American mammals, and he led two major scientific expeditions for prominent American museums, one in South America and one in Africa. Had he not become president, he would be remembered for his contributions in both of these fields. In between these busy enterprises, he found time to ranch in the West, hunt on several continents, raise a family of six rambunctious children, read a remarkable number of books, often one or more per day, write more than 35 books himself, and develop an extraordinary network of friends and contacts literally around the world, which he maintained mostly by... Mail, that's when you write something out and put a stamp on it and send it. That's what they used to do back in the old days. Uh, Writing well over 150,000 letters. During his tenure in the White House from 1901 to 1909, he designated 150 national forests, the first 51 federal bird reservations, five national parks, the first 18 national monuments, the first four game preserves, the first 21 reclamation projects, all together in a seven and a half Years he was in office, he provided federal protection for almost 230 million acres, a land area equivalent to all of the East Coast states from Maine to Florida. He began the Panama Canal, established the Department of Commerce and Labor, negotiated an end to the Russo-Japanese War, and thereby won the Nobel Peace Prize, preached a square deal for all Americans, enabling millions to earn a living wage. He helped build up the Navy as the big stick, thus establishing America as a major world power. He reduced the national debt by over $90 million and secured the passage of many acts having to do with helping the poor and labor. In addition, he successfully mediated international disputes over Venezuela, the Dominican Republic, and Morocco, and many, 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 many other things. Toward the end of his life, he was a major force for military preparedness, particularly as World War I loomed. He wanted to take a regiment of volunteers over to put an end to World War I. And of course, the teddy bear is named after him. The, the Viscount Lee of Farham, an English statesman, wrote this of Teddy Roosevelt, of all the public men that I have known on both sides of the Atlantic, and there are few that I have not known in the past 30 years, he stands out as the greatest and as the most potent influence for good upon the life of his generation. Or, as a young schoolboy in New York wrote after Roosevelt died, he was the fulfiller of good intentions, the fulfiller of good intentions. Now, good here, obviously, according to this young man and to the Viscount 
of Pharaoh is a relative term. There would be many who would argue that the things that Teddy Roosevelt did were good, great things. There would be others who would argue, well, it was mixed. And there would be others today who would uh, demonize him as having done things that really we suffer with to this day. So good depends on who is calling the thing what he's calling it. We have truly good news today, though, and that is that there is one, his name is Jesus, who didn't just fulfill good intentions, he fulfilled God's intentions for him. These are things that are absolutely good, absolutely beneficial, and eternally good for us. He was sent to complete the work given to him by his father, and today we have the privilege of hearing an eyewitness report from the Apostle John. He was there as Jesus hung on the cross, and he gives us his report of that. So before we turn to John 19, let's, let's pray together and ask the Lord to help us. Father, help us to see what you want us to see today. Lord, you have allowed John, inspired John through the Spirit to write these words. These are your words to us, written through the pen of John. And Lord, we ask you to show us what you want us to see, each one in this room. Lord, I pray in particular for those who are experiencing, as we heard this morning, an orphan's heart who don't know to whom they belong. And we ask, Lord, that there would be no one leaving this room today who would still be in that place and having that experience. Meet each one of us, Lord, as you do, in your way, by the Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's read. We're going to begin reading John chapter 19. The second half of verse 16 about the crucifixion of Jesus. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, and said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and they broke the legs of the first 
and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. This is a very dense portion of scripture. It's a very dense story. The other gospel writers fill in some other details. I would encourage you as you study this to look at those other ones. There there are things in the other passages that John does not include. Things like the second beating that Jesus received, the two uh, thieves on the cross, and how one of them came to believe in Jesus while he was hanging there. Some of the words that Jesus spoke are not included in John's gospel. There are many other details. This is the densest portion of scripture. This is the gravitational point for all of history. Everything before this looks forward to this moment and everything after this looks forward, looks backward to the cross and the subsequent resurrection of Jesus. This is the culmination of everything God has spoken. His intention for Jesus is finished right here. Jesus is the finisher of every good intention called good by God. Every truly good intention. It's a story that draws together all the threads, all the prophecies from the Old Testament, and they make sense here as these things come to pass. It's a story that we remember every time we take communion and we remember the Lord's death until he comes. He wants us to look deeply and intently at this story. Study it in all four Gospels. Today, we're going to look particularly at John's account as we realize this is a story we're going to read about, we're going to sing about, we're going to worship the Lamb that was slain. This moment will be before our eyes somehow for all of eternity. So we want to pay attention to the one who is an eyewitness and the things that he noticed as we look at this. For today's purposes, I want to look at a couple of the details that are found in John's account, since we're working through the book of John, that are not found in the other gospel accounts. In particular, I think John shows us that Jesus hanging on the cross is the fulfiller of God's intentions in three ways. First one is by finishing the work that God gave him to do. Back in John 17, a couple chapters ago, when Jesus is praying after he's taught his disciples many things about the Holy Spirit, about him going away and saying he's going to send the Helper, and then he's praying for himself and for the believers and for us who have come to believe through those original 11 and what they wrote. He he wrote this, he said this, I glorified you, Father, on earth, having accomplished, having finished the work that you gave me to do. So he is a fulfiller of God's intentions by finishing the work that God gave him to do. Secondly, He is a 
fulfiller of God's intentions by revealing the love of God to us. At the beginning of the book of John, it says one of Jesus' intentions in coming was to exegete, to make known the Father, the one who is at the Father's hand. He's the one who's seen God and he has come to make the Father known. So on the cross, hanging there, he fulfills God's intention that we would know God and see God. And thirdly, He's the fulfiller of God's intentions by giving us the right at this moment to to go from the word that we heard earlier, being an orphan. I don't know. You heard the testimonies this morning. They didn't know who they belonged to. They're lost. They're hopeless. I know every orphan's hope is Jesus. And so he gives us on the cross the right to become the children of God. That's how he fulfills the Father's purposes. So let's look at those three in a little bit more detail. Number one, on the cross, Jesus became the fulfiller of God's intentions by finishing the work that God gave him to do. Look at three sections of this passage that we read, beginning verse 23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments, they divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier and also his tunic. The tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. A thousand years earlier, David had written those words in Psalm 22. Jesus, knowing the scripture, knowing that he had been called to be the fulfiller, to finish the work God had called him to do, fulfilled that scripture right here a thousand years later. In verse 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, intentionally saying this, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch, held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. He bowed his head, and John says he gave up his spirit. No one took it from him. He gave up his spirit. Psalm 69 prophesied this exactly. They would give me sour wine to drink. A thousand years earlier, Jesus came to fulfill every detail of the Father's plan. He finished, he drained the cup of God's wrath. We have read just a chapter before when Peter was going to strike off the ear of Malchus. Will I not drink this cup that the Father has given me? And he's on this cross, he's draining the last drop of God's wrath for everyone who believes in him. And then in verse 33, when they came to Jesus, the soldiers, and saw that he was already dead, they didn't break his legs, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with the spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness, and his testimony is true. He knows he's telling the truth, that you may also believe. These things took place again, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken, and again another. Scripture says they will look on him whom they have pierced. So back in Psalm 34, again, they had talked about this one who is coming, whose bones would not be broken. Uh, thief number one, legs are broken. Thief number two, legs are broken with the, with this hammer. Jesus is already dead. His legs are not broken. Psalm 34. Even prior to that, 1,300 years before, when God is giving commandments regarding the Passover, he says of the Passover lamb, 
Do not break one of its bones. Here is Jesus fulfilling. He's bringing these things to completion. The entire meaning of the Passover, all that had happened was for this moment. Those scriptures written 1,300 years before pointed to this. His legs were not broken. His bones were not broken. He drank the sour wine. He fulfilled every detail. He was a fulfiller of every one of God's good intentions. Even though right at this moment, they're not looking so good, are they? And then Zechariah prophesied 500 years before Jesus. They will look on this shepherd. He's writing of the shepherd in Zechariah 12. They will look on the shepherd. They will pierce him. And then they will mourn. They will look at the one that they've pierced. And they will mourn. 500 years before this. Notice how these things are fulfilled in this passage to the minutest detail. Nothing is left undone. John, he emphasizes the true humanity of Jesus. He wants us to know that this was a man from Nazareth. There were many in his day that were saying that Jesus was just a spirit, not really a body. And he emphasizes Jesus was a man. He was from Nazareth. He thirsted. Blood and water came out when a spear went in. He was a truly a man. He had come that John says, to tabernacle among us, to live among his people in a human body. That was important that we, for John to make sure that we knew that. See the combination in these verses and these things that are fulfilled of God ruling over every detail and Jesus responding and doing whatever God had asked him to do. The soldiers didn't know what they were doing. They were fulfilling the wishes of, the, of God the Father. Jesus knew what he was doing. He was fulfilling the wishes of God the Father. God the Father ruled over every detail, from Caiaphas' prophecy to Pilate's proclamation, king of the Jews, to the soldiers doing what they did. And Jesus the Son responded to every detail. I thirst so that the scriptures could be fulfilled. Amazing. He's in agony, and the scriptures, the things that God has asked him to do are foremost in his mind, to fulfill all righteousness, every detail. D.A. Carson writes this, There is little doubt about John's Christological purpose. John's first readers, familiar with their Bibles, would remember the references in Zechariah to God's promised shepherd, and remember that Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. They might also remember that the next chapter of Zechariah begins with the words, On that day a fountain will be opened in the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. It would be hard for them not to reflect on the flow of blood and water from Jesus' side and see in it the promise of the Spirit from John 7 and the cleansing and life that issues from these new covenant promises that he made to Nicodemus. Unless you're born again of water and the Spirit. John 7 was when the the Feast of the Tabernacles, again, another fulfillment in Jesus, the booths. Jesus came to tabernacle among us. And in that proclamation, he announces on the great day of the feast, come to me, all you who are thirsty, come to me and I'll give you drink. And he spoke of the spirit that would be poured out. So here we find fulfillment in this as the sword goes in and as this cleansing flow of his blood and the water representing the Holy Spirit comes forth. Bruce Milne writes, What does it is finished mean for us? All of eternity will be needed to answer that question. So I urge you, study this. Study all of it. Study it again. Keep looking. Do what John did. He's looking intently. He's there. He's noticing things. Notice things. Ask the Spirit to show you. 
All eternity will be needed to answer that. For Christ's love unto death is the wonder of the ages, the theme of heaven's adoring millions, the supreme mystery committed to us, to the church on earth. We can explore it only a little in light of Jesus' triumphant cry. It is accomplished. It will take eternity for us to understand. So let's begin now. Secondly, on the cross, Jesus became the fulfiller of God's intentions by revealing the love of the Father for his people. Watch carefully. Now, only John gives us this detail. This is very significant. Verse 25. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved which we think is John, standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And to the disciple, Son, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. In a different story, Luke had showed that one of the thieves on the cross actually came to believe in Jesus while hanging there. Started as one who was reviling Jesus just like the other one. And somehow in that moment, in those hours that they were hanging there, God revealed to him, this is the Messiah. And he called out and Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. So those who were far off from Jesus, the thieves, those who were not obeying the law, the Roman centurion who at the end said, surely... This was the Son of God. This was an innocent man in the other Gospels. John doesn't record that, but in this picture we see, as John is looking, there are those who are far off from God who are being brought near. And there are those who are near. John, his beloved disciple, and his mother, his earthly mother Mary, he sees them in their agony. Mary had had it prophesied to her when Jesus was a baby, a sword will pierce your heart. And it's happening right here. Her hopes are being dashed. She has treasured up 33 years of amazing things, beginning with that birth and all that surrounded it, the mystery of that. The boy Jesus at the temple, what in the world? The 12-year-old boy, he's lost and he's in his father's house, watching, watching the wedding at Cana in Galilee where he turns the water into wine. She knew something is amazing and all of that is coming crashing down right now. He's hanging on the cross and he's not coming down. He's not responding to the mocking. He's not raising himself as he had just raised Lazarus. And there's John, the one that leaned on his breast and, and the, at the table, who was his, his friend, his beloved, probably, possibly his cousin, who loved him, the beloved disciple. That's God speaking. That's not just John's good idea. That was God saying that. This is the beloved disciple. Son, mother, he's paying attention to them. In these hours where his physical body was being overwhelmed, and you cannot imagine, I've, I've, given, I've given you something to read uh, at the end, I'll talk about it a little bit, but you, you need to study what happened to Jesus to get a, a glimpse at his physical suffering. And where his soul was overwhelmed by the sorrow of these people who had just been shouting Hosanna a week ago are now saying crucify him. They're mocking him. He's being nailed to the cross. He's being rebuked by the leaders of the Jewish people that he had come to save. The people are mocking him. His disciples mostly have fled. His father is going to turn his face away as sin 
our sin is poured out on him and God's wrath in full measure comes to him. Johnny Erickson said, with regard to Jesus' physical suffering, I discovered that the Lord Jesus Christ could indeed empathize with my situation. She's paralyzed from an accident when she was a teenager. Quadriplegic. On the cross for those agonizing, horrible hours waiting for death, he was immobilized, helpless, paralyzed. Jesus did know what it was like not to be able to move, not to be able to scratch your nose or shift your weight or wipe your eyes. He was paralyzed on the cross. Christ knew exactly how I felt. And Bruce Milne writes with regard to relational suffering. Jesus not only suffered appalling physical pain, he suffered it at the hands of others. To put the matter starkly, Jesus was abused. Today, physical and spousal and sexual abuse have been brought out of the closet and we have come to terms with the grim statistics of the numbers of women and children and orphans who are the daily victims of abuse in our society and literally around the world. This passage assures us of the support and understanding of a Savior who's been there. His body was violated. He's the God of the abused. And then the emotional suffering of Jesus. He was mocked and despised by leaders, by soldiers, by the crowd. When the tapes of yesterday's humiliation and shames begin to whirl in our minds, there's a fellowship of sufferings which is wonderfully releasing and reassuring. He is indeed our fellow sufferer. He knows and he can share The writer of Hebrews says this of Jesus, We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. That's what John is looking at on the cross. He's seeing the shepherd who said just a short time ago, the good shepherd, I am the good shepherd of Zechariah, who lays down his life for his sheep. For the first time in human history, never before was love defined until this moment. There had been commandments in the Old Testament. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then laws that were meant not to help us love, but to point us to the fact that we couldn't do it. There was another commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. And yet from the very beginning, there had been hatred and enmity. Until this moment... God didn't show us what love looked like. And then right here on the cross, as John is staring at this one, he says, by this you know love. He laid down his life for you. That's love defined. You want to know what love is? Look at the cross. He looks at those two. His mother, her agony... Not nearly what he was suffering, but he knows her agony. He looks at John, he knows his agony, their hopes dashed. And in his pain, he meets their need for relationship and for care. And he does the same for each of you. Look at him. He is staring at you. He's laid down his life for you. He knows exactly what your need is. Every single need. He's been tempted in every way. 
as you've been, as you will be. Never sinning, always faithful, always ready to meet you right where you are. He's suffering death so that we won't have to. He's suffering the horrors of God's righteous wrath so that we don't have to. And thirdly, on the cross, Jesus became the fulfiller of God's intentions by giving us the right to become the children of God. Back in John 1, as John just gives the preamble to this entire book. And remember, the purpose of this book, the purpose of this letter, of this, of this gospel that he wrote, I write these things that you may know, that you may come to believe that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and then in believing in him, you may have life. That's why he's writing. That's why he's giving this depiction, these details about the cross of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus. John wrote this at the beginning, to all, to all, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God by the Spirit, that Spirit symbolized in the water which is poured out, this living water. Right in front of their eyes, he's creating a new family. He's saying, I have a mother, she's my mother, she birthed me, I have a cousin or a friend or a disciple, whatever he was, and I'm going to create a new family. It's not just about blood. There's something more that's going to happen. I'm beginning right now to build my church. It's going to be made up of cowards, like the disciples who ran away last night, and thieves, like this one right here, who my father rescued from death while I was hanging on the cross. It'll be made up of of women and men and Jewish leaders like Joseph and Nicodemus who came out of the darkness and out of hiding right here. And maybe soldiers who remember this. And maybe the centurion who at the end said, surely this man was innocent. He was the son of God. Not of the gods, as he should have said, but son of God. The family of Jesus consists of all those who do the will of his father. And the will of his father is very simple, but impossible. Without the help of the spirit, the helper who comes, who makes it possible to believe in the one who he sent. That's the will of the Father. That's the work that we have to do. He did all the work of obedience. We do the work of response by faith, saying, I believe. I believe in you. Bruce Milne writes, No clearer witness to his continuing triumph is conceivable. It's no accident that his death has the effect of moving Joseph and Nicodemus to abandon their secret discipleship as they unite boldly to identify with Jesus and share together in work in his service. In other words, right there at the cross, the nucleus of the new community is already forming. And the mission of the church under the leadership of the risen Jesus is already foreshadowed. Thus, the flow of blood and water is a further sign for John, anticipating the sign of the community of the risen one. That's the outpouring of the Spirit, which is coming in just a short period of time. Among whom John bears his witness, this gospel, and through whom the light of this gospel beams into every new generation, which is what's happening right now. 
This last point focuses the challenge of the passage. As the death of Jesus drove Joseph and Nicodemus into open identification with him, so he calls his people on the basis of his death for them to receive the gift of the powerful spirit and to be his bold and unashamed witnesses in the world. The one who is sent has finished, fulfilled every purpose that God called him to. And now he sends us to fulfill the purpose he's called us to. What do we do with this? One thing. There are two groups of people in the world. There are those who believe and there are those who still do not believe. That's the only two things that matter in eternity. Whether you believed in Jesus and trusted him or whether you didn't. John chapter 3 contains the most famous verse in in all the Bible. It's at every football game around the world, soccer games. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. We see it right here. That whoever, whoever, whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. But the end of that chapter also states this. It's John the Baptist is testifying. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not believe in the Son, the wrath of God remains on him. So when we stare at the cross, we stare at it from either one of two places. We stare at it in wonder. God in the flesh died for me. He knows every need that I have. He was willing to suffer agony and pain. And all of the things that that cross represents that I could only begin to get a glimpse of in this lifetime. It's going to take all of eternity to get even the fraction of an understanding of what he did there. And my response of my heart needs to be, oh, God, teach me to worship you. But the cross also, from the other side, is a picture of what is true. It's a testimony. The wrath of God is real. The wrath of God. There are, there are in many places around the world now, there are books being written that there is no hell, that there is no wrath of God. It makes a mockery of this day. It's, it is false teaching. Don't read it. Don't believe it. The wrath of God absolutely obliterated this man on the cross. And if, if you are under the wrath of God because you don't believe, that cross is a picture of what awaits you. Not to scare you from me, but God wants to scare you. God holds that cross up for all who are on this side, part of the family through belief in Jesus. That's all that it is. I believe him. He is the Christ, the son of the living God. And I have life in his name. But that same cross from the other side says, this is what awaits you for eternity. But here's the good news. Here's what we must hear. To all who did receive him, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, born of the Spirit. Of God. If you are in that second category today, or you're not sure 
that the wrath of God, which should horrify you as you look at the cross, here's what the world wants to do. The world wants to ignore the cross and make up its own goodness, just like Teddy Roosevelt's commentators. He was a keeper of good intentions, but we get to define what good is. God defines what's good. What's good is his son. What's good is his plan. And his plan is that his son would perfectly keep every tiniest bit of the law, of what was written, down to a sip of sour wine from a sponge on a hyssop branch for you. He would die in your place, taking the wrath of God's righteous judgment on himself on that cross, being annihilated by the will of his Father at the hands of sinful men so that you could go free and you could receive not just forgiveness, but adoption. So if, as you heard this morning in the Word, there still is a spirit of orphan in you today, please don't leave here. Let us pray. Because the good news is this, to all who received Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become not an orphan, but a child, a beloved child of God. Let's pray. Father, we we exalt you. We realize, even as we begin to try to glimpse what you've done here on the cross, we feel the weight of it, and yet we know that there's much more. So Lord, I just pray for all of these dear, dear brothers and sisters, those who have come from close, from far away, wherever they've come from, Lord, who believe in Jesus, they're part of our family. I just pray that you would give them a deeper hunger I pray that the cross would move them, that they would be moved to tears, moved to worship, moved to joy increasingly throughout their life. And Father, for those who are here who remain under your wrath, whether they're young, as we heard, or whether they're old, I pray today that your spirit would move, that you would give them the gift of faith, that they would see Jesus in a totally new light, that they would look on him who they have pierced, They would mourn with repentance and they would turn and believe and become a part of this amazing family that you have built, that you are building. Thank you, Lord, that you love us. Thank you that you know us. Thank you that you are concerned about this tiniest detail of our life. We give you praise for that. In Jesus' name. A couple things I'd like to highlight just just by way of of, uh, helping you with this. One of the pastors in our group of churches, his name is Rick Gamash. He works closely with Craig. He's a pastor up in Minneapolis, and he did a number of years ago um, kind of a it's a, a narrative. Some of it's speculative, but all of it's based on the scriptures and some medical things. And there's a copy of this out there on the book table for each family. There's one per family. You can also just get his name and go on the web and he can hear him do this, which I would encourage you to do. Hear Rick read this. Uh, It's online and you can listen to that in some other places. Rick Gamash, uh, wonderful. And also this book, The Passion of Jesus Christ, which is used to be titled 50 Reasons Why Jesus Came to Die. It helps you to look and look again and look again and look again like John did and keep thinking about what Jesus has done for you. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org.